The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are here this morning to praise you, to, to ascribe to you all the praise and the glory and the honor that you and only you deserve. God, we're here to continue to proclaim your excellencies, to make much out of you, to celebrate uh, who you are and what you've done and what you've promised to do. And get them, uh, as we uh, talk more this morning about um, the, the great exchange and uh, how you rescued us when we were um, helpless, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and, and how, Lord Jesus, you took all of our sin upon yourself and exchanged the righteousness of God for our filthy rags, and we are forever grateful. So God, I pray for families here this morning, for people that are here that maybe the morning hasn't gone exactly how they planned. Uh, Maybe they're light on sleep. Maybe there's been stress. God, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, just uh, help uh, us be attentive uh, to your spirit uh, and, and your word, and that you would transform us, that we'd be encouraged that we would be uh, sent out um, 
with great excitement to proclaim your excellencies. So God, have your way with us here this morning. We need you, and uh, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. We are on part two. If you're new with us here today, we've been teaching through, we started last week a sermon series called The Mystery of Marriage. And part one last week was about the pattern of marriage. Today we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. And um, if you, are, like me, want to like, get to the bottom line, like how am I to respond as a husband? How am I to act as a husband? Or ladies, how are you to act as wives? You're going to have to come back the next couple weeks because next Sunday we're going to talk about um, what's a woman to do. And the week after that is what's a man to do. And in the fifth sermon, we're going to talk about um, perversions, actually, um, in marriage, in our culture today. And I want to just put a plug in. Jake did it, but I want to put a plug in for the weekend marriage seminar that will be coming on, I think, the 24th, 25th, whatever that Friday, Saturday is. It'll be Friday evening, Saturday morning, and it's really going to be a continuation, um, if you will, or a consummation of the marriage seminar. And we're going to have three main topics. Um, might have told you this last week. One is um, uh, biblical reconciliation. Next is biblical communication. And then the final is biblical sex. And we've saved that the last because we just want to keep you there. And uh... <laughs> So have you heard it said before that marriage is not so much about your happiness as it is your sanctification? Have you heard that before? It's not so much about your happiness, but about your sanctification. And that can, um, I think that it, it's true. Um, here, here's what sanctification is, first of all. There's, there's two different types of sanctification. There's something called positional sanctification, and there's something called progressive sanctification. Um, we just sang about uh, positional sanctification. Positional sanctification means that, that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, and as a result of your faith, you have been justified or declared innocent. In other words, that, that you have a relationship with the Father because Jesus took all of your sin. He, he took it all upon himself, and, and he now, the Father now sees you as holy, as, as already sanctified, as blameless, as pure, as spotless, as forgiven. So positionally speaking, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have been sanctified. But there's something that we talk in this church a lot, and in, in Christianity we talked about this process of sanctification. So at the moment of salvation, you became positionally sanctified, meaning that God became your father forever. There's nothing you did to earn that adoption. There's nothing you can do to undo that adoption. You became sanctified positionally. But between that point of salvation and the point when you're face-to-face with Jesus, that span between the altar and the door, as Casting Crown sings, is called progressive sanctification. And progressive sanctification simply means that we are growing in Christ-likeness. We're looking more like Jesus. We're starting to live as the Father already sees us. Positionally is a reality that God sees us as holy and pure and spotless. Otherwise, he wouldn't have a relationship with us. But while we're on this earth in this flesh and we're still susceptible to sin, we're still in process, are we not? (laughs) The understatement of the year. So some would say that marriage, Gary Thomas says in his book, The Sacred Marriage, that marriage isn't so much about happiness, it's about sanctification. Meaning that if you're married, um, your marriage is going to sanctify you because you've got a spouse that, um, that 
struggles with sin and with the flesh. Um, and um, and that's, that's true. In fact, in fact, when we look at God's word, we see that, that trials and suffering are one of God's primary means for making us holy, for making us more like Christ. Um, and so in, in marriage is that primary relationship. But I want to just tell you this right up front, that, that you can be happy. You can be supremely happy in marriage, even though there's a lot of sanctif- sanctifying going on. You can be supremely happy in marriage. I've experienced that over 36 years. I continue to experience that. There's been times where, um, where you know, happiness has waned. Um, but you can be, that God has actually designed us. His pattern and purpose for marriage, when we, when we joyfully submit to his pattern and purpose, um, we will be blessed. We will be happy. And as we look through the Bible and we see that God uses these trials and sufferings to draw us close to him, to shed our fleshly desires and attitudes, um, it can be said, one cynic said this, that, there are, that marriage is like a three-ring circus. There's the engagement ring, there is the wedding ring, and then there is the suffering. And that happens in so many marriages, but God uses that to draw us to himself. God created marriage, and his desire for you and I is that we thrive in it. Not just survive, but thrive. And I tell that to young couples when I marry them, that your goal is not just to survive this thing. Your goal is to thrive in what God created. And you can only do that by understanding his pattern, his design, and his purposes for marriage. Last week, we looked at the pattern of marriage. We, in Ephesians 5, 23 through 31, Paul describes how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. Husbands loving, wives submitting. And we're going to talk about that next couple weeks. But then after that, in verse 32, Paul makes one of the strangest yet most profound statements in the entire Bible. He says, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that, that it refers to Christ in the church. Well, we talked about this last week. The it. What's the it? It's marriage. Marriage is a profound ministry, uh, uh, mystery. Marriage is a metaphor that points to a greater reality. That when Christ returns, when this life is done, we will not know marriage in the way we know it between man and woman. And I told you last week that kind of freaks me out because I don't have... I have not fully grasped that. All of humanity, whether you're married or not, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, widowed, currently married, all of humanity was created for marriage. Not not Adam and Eve only, but for Christ and the church. You and I were created for marriage. Marriage with Christ. Last week we talked about uh, marriage being the wraparound concept. Um, just before this series, we caught on. We, we taught on the kingdom, and the kingdom was a was a theme throughout the Bible. Uh, God's kingdom uh, from the beginning, and God's re-established kingdom in the end. Well, marriage is the same way. It's a wraparound concept that we see in Genesis two twenty through twenty four that Jolene just read, where we see that God created marriage by joining the pinnacle of His very good creation. You and I, we're the we're His masterpiece, and in the very beginning, He He joined the first man and woman together in marriage. Marriage has been a good thing from the beginning. In fact, he called it very good. And then the biblical narrative ends in in chapter 19, verses 6 through 8, with a different type of wedding. I'm going to read it to you. This is John in his vision, and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters that 
and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has come. And his bride, the church, you and I, have made ourselves ready with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The first cosmos was created as the first home of newlyweds, Adam and Eve. The last cosmos, the final cosmos, the new cosmos that's coming will be created as an eternal home of the Son, Jesus Christ, and his bride. So the profound ministry, the prof- I keep wanting to say ministry, the prov- profound mystery Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5.32 is a hidden plan of God that has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So what's the pattern of marriage? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus, it's what Jesus has done for us and how we respond to Jesus. That's the pattern for marriage. When God invented marriage, he had already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. He interprets the original creation of the husband and wife union as itself modeled on Christ's forthcoming union with his church as his body. Therefore, marriage from the very beginning of creation was created by God to be a reflection of and patterned after Christ's relationship to the church. Your marriage, if your marriage, your marriage is a picture of a greater and an everlasting marriage. In Ephesians 5, verse 1, we talked about this last week, that Paul introduces this section in Ephesians about um, how to relate with the key relationships in our lives, our employees, employers, our spouse, our children. And he, he kind of frames all those relationships, the way that we're to relate with one another as Christians. In Ephesians 5, 1, he says, Christians are commanded to be um, imitators of God. And he describes that imitation of walking in love as Christ loved us. If there's one word, that, one word that describes the triune God, it's, it's love. And that's how we're to, to live in our relationships with others, is to love as we have been loved. This is the model or pattern for all Christian relationships, especially marriage. And if we're going to um, follow that, that mandate and, and that command, we need to know and understand and experience Jesus' love for us. And I don't use the word experience um, accidentally. In our kind of reformed tradition here, we talk about like, like understanding it and reading it and maybe knowing about it, but God wants you to experience his love. He wants you to know his love in the most intimate of ways. And if we're going to know it and experience it, um, last week we actually uh, unpacked it a bit, and if you did not hear last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go online and hear it because it really sets the table for the rest of the series. But we looked at different aspect, uh, aspects of Christ's love last week, and I'm going to just summarize it here, and here it is. Jesus was and is submitting. His love is a submitting love. His love is a sacrificing love. His love is, is a serving love with humility. His love is forgiving. His love is unifying. His love is uh, covenantal, and it's satisfying. Tim Keller said both men and women, both husband and wife, get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his submission to the Father. So today, we're going to explore the purpose of marriage. Anybody want to guess what that is? The purpose of marriage. 
The reality that our earthly marriage points us to a real marriage that our soul needs is enough of a purpose, actually. Our primary purpose is that, that it points to a greater marriage. But I think there's more. There's, there's two primary ones that I want to hit on today. God created marriage for companionship, friendship, and sanctification. Those two purposes, companionship or friendship and sanctification. He created marriage so we would not be alone and that we would grow in Christ's likeness. But first, I want to mention some very good yet secondary purpose for, purposes for marriage. Here's, here's two, really good, but secondary. One, procreation. It is a, it is a purpose of marriage. Um, Roman Catholics have tended to say that marriage is for procreation primarily. They stress the command in Genesis 128 to the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. It, that's a good thing. Um, this command to be fruitful and multiply means that all marriages should be open to the prospect of having children. In fact, marriage is a God-given context for children to grow up, so it can be said accurately that one of the purposes for marriage is, in fact, procreation. However, if God's purpose for marriage was just procreation, then childless marriages would, in some sense, be lesser marriages, and they're not. That You see, um, I want, um, we, we had three kids. And we kind of took things into our own hands, um, selfishly. And, and, and actually, um, God leads every family differently. But for me, I look back on that and go, Dog, God, I missed a blessing. I'm listening, I missed a four and a five blessing. I got three beautiful blessings. So I'm having lunch with my daughter yesterday, and she's saying, you know, I think, I think we're, we're done. You know, she's got, she's got soon to be six, soon to be four, soon to be two, and, and then she's got one born in July. And I'm going, honey. You're in sin. No, I didn't say that. I just said, hey, you know what? I just trust that the Lord will lead you and Jared in, in, this, in this whole process. Um, but if, if God's purpose for marriage was just procreation, then childless marriages would in some sense be lesser marriages. Let me just say this, that, that when man and woman say, I do, it is very good. That is the family. Any children? Are there any kids in here? Raise your hands. If you are like 17 and under. Okay. I want you to look at your mom and dad right now. And I want you to say, mom and dad, I want to remind you that I am a blessing. <laughs> yes. And children are blessings from the Lord, but the primary purpose of marriage is not to procreate. It's a blessing that God gives us that we should enjoy. In fact, the Song of Solomon, the Bible's great celebration of marital love, guess what? Never once mentions kids. Sorry, guys. What's up with that? The second primary purpose for marriage that some would say is protection. And that emphasis, they emphasize 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, where it says it is better to marry than to burn or to be lustful, that, that God actually did give us marriage as a, as a, uh, as a context to be able to um, procreate, to be able to have sex. Sorry. That's okay. It's God invented that. 
So some have said that it's, a, that it's, it's for the protection. But again, it's, it's, and it is true that the only biblical context for sex is marriage and that God does, in fact, forbid sex outside of marriage. However, marriage was given before humanity fell into sin. Marriage was given before there was lust. So that can't be a primary purpose of marriage. It is a purpose, and it's a good purpose, and we will enjoy that purpose. But marriage, a primary purpose, is it's just not a way to alleviate our sexual desires. It does, but it's not a primary purpose. The true purpose in marriage is given in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The primary purpose of marriage, then, is to solve the problem of loneliness. Another way of saying it is the purpose of marriage is friendship or companionship. And I want to just explore this a little bit um, further, a little bit deeper. I want to go back to Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and pray that I don't lose you. Because um, one of these concepts is one that we're never going to fully understand. I don't. And I don't expect to until I'm face to face with the Lord. But it says this in Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over creeping things and things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We, you and I, all of us were made in the image of the triune or trinitarian God. God said, let us create man or humanity, men and women, in our image. God speaks here, speaks, of, speaks in, in plural pronouns. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's the triune God speaking. It's, it's, it's one God in three persons. Here's, here's my best attempt on defining the Trinity. One God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who reach fully and equally God in eternal relationship with each other. Now, if you take the slide off, and if you would just go ahead and repeat that uh, to your spouse. You don't have to do that. Um, In the diversity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is perfect unity as one God that communicates truthfully, loves unreservedly, lives in unity, serves humbly, interacts peaceably, and serves selflessly. In a word, the Trinity is the ideal community in every way, or it it could be said another way, that God is a friend and he has friends. And for some of you, um, that might sound like watered down. But the reality is, is that we were created in his image. In the image of the triune God. And I believe that it has direct correlation on the way that we're to behave and respond to one another in the marriage um, relationship and also in the relationship of the body of Christ. Some religions teach that God made people to cure his loneliness. Can I just tell you right up front, that's false. That's absolutely false. In fact, God as a Trinitarian community was never without loving community. He has never been lonely. Rather, he is a relational God who welcomes us into a relationship with himself. He's never needed us, but he wants us. He welcomes us. 
Our longing, my longing, our innate longing that, that we've had since we were little children, our longing for love, for unity, for communication, for community, for humility, for peace and selflessness are in fact by design. We were created by the triune God. We were created for relationship, for friendship with the triune God and friendship with each other. And especially after God, friendship in marriage. I've been convicted by this in many ways. I'm like, a, I'm like all business sometimes. You're like my wife and I hang out a lot together, but I don't know that I think through the lens of friend very often. I would call her a friend. I, might, I would probably call her my best friend, but I don't know that I relate to her that way all the time. And that's, that is a, a Trinitarian concept. We've, been, we've actually been um, created for friendship. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. Let's look at Genesis 2, 18 through 24. First, it's important as you look at chapter 1, verse 31, it's important to note that after God created everything, he said what? It is very good. It is very good. Then in chapter 2, 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, God made all of creation and declared it was very good, but there was one thing that was not good. Do you see it? Man was alone. Man was alone. God created you and I for relationship. When he says says it was not good, what he meant there is that it was not good. It was definitely bad. So in Genesis 2.18, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. But right there, I don't think Adam recognized that he needed a helper. I don't think he knew he needed a helper. I mean, he's like there with, with God. And he's there in this beautiful creation. No animals yet. But I think he's you know, like, okay, this is great. But, I, but I'm, I'm created for something different. And God, God this is no surprise to God. This, God didn't go, well, heck, I made a mistake. I need to do something different. Um, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. But I believe it was God's, it was God's, well, I don't believe, I know it was God's perfect timing. Everything that God does is his perfect timing. But God, Adam, I don't think, sensed the need for a helper. So, so as the animals walked by, let me actually read verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. How would you like to have that job? That would be so fun to name everything that walks by you. I've done that at the 16th Street Mall down in Denver before, but they weren't animals. Um, it was fun. But I did it under my breath, uh, lovingly. Uh, It says, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So picture this, that all the animals and all the creation, all all, everything that breathed was being created, and they were going by him. He's going, horse, cow, Bernie Doodle, Labradoodle, cat, cat, what's what's that, horse, and he gets to name all these things. I'm an animal lover. But my wife, the woman, she won't let me get another dog. So I'm trying to love her through it. (laughs) Animals are great, but they are not suitable helpers. They're not suitable helpers. You see, we're created for relationship. 
And even if you're not married, if you're single, if you're divorced, you're widowed, God knows you're still created for marriage with the sovereign God, the triune God, and you're created for relationship with the church. And so one of the things I'm most excited about around here is that God is bringing in single people, men and women. And brothers and sisters that are married, we are to love them well. And single folks, um, dive in. Let us love you well. You use your gifts to serve. And let us use our gifts to serve you. Animals are great, but they're not suitable and ultimate helpers that we were made for. So in verse 20, second half of verse 20, it says this, but for Adam, Adam's naming all these animals, then he recognizes, he realizes that there was, n- there was no helper that was fit for him. None of these were helpers that were suitable to him. He probably felt his isolation, and, and this isolation prepared him to receive the greatest gift under God that he would ever receive, the great, greater than all of creation. Second only to his relationship with the triune God. Out of something not good, man being alone, God makes him a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, I've never noticed this before, actually. He said, at last, those are the words, at last. I mean, I love these animals, but at last, a helper that is fit for me, that I can relate with, that I can have friendship with, that I can serve, that I can love, that I can hold until death do his part. And at this very first wedding, I love this, at this very first wedding, God brings the woman to the man. It says that he brought the woman to the man. Who gives this woman to this man to be wedded? It's me, the triune God. Wouldn't that be crazy? (laughs) Then after God created woman, and Adam gives a shout, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he gets to name her. He gets to name her. It says that Adam named her. And they're naked. It says that in the verse. And he goes, whoa, man, woman. That's old. I figured I would try that just for in case there was two of you that never heard that before. There was probably, my guess is there was, a, there was an immediate attraction would be my guess. I mean, God has actually made us to be attracted to the opposite sex. But friendship and companionship are, is so much more powerful of a foundation to build a marriage on than physical chemistry. Um, and for, for you youngsters up there, hi, up there. And for those of you that are even younger youngsters and some of you that are older youngsters that are single and that you desire to be married someday, um, you're going to have, you're going to be attracted physically to someone else. And what I want to encourage you is you need to make sure that you're attracted to that person's relationship with Jesus. And that that person is going to spur you on to love Jesus. And that, and that there's a friendship and a companionship and the, the uh, physical attraction, it's a bonus. 
It's a bonus. After 36 years, I've got all that stuff still going on with my wife. I mean, she's, a, she's my friend. She's my companion. She loves Jesus. She spurs me on. I'm still attracted to her. It's awesome. Sexual icons. Sexual icons in our culture are, are that what the culture sees is the man or woman um, scantily clad on the magazine. But a sexual icon in God's providence, in God's kingdom, is a man and woman all wrinkled and shriveled up that have been married for 70 years and have had fidelity for those seven years. That's a sexual icon. So God created a helper that is fit for Adam, that is suitable for Adam. This cannot imply inferiority. For God is our helper, is he not? God is our helper. We see that in Psalm 54 and all other places in Scripture. And like the Trinity, men and women are equal, and neither man or woman are superior or inferior to the other. We have differing roles, and we're going to talk about that next week, and we're going to talk about that the week after. But neither are either superior or inferior. John Howard Yoder said this, that men and women have equality of worth, not equality of role. Listen to this. Since God is permanent, he designed us for lasting marriages, not divorce. Since God is, and let me just say this, God does not hate divorced people. There is grace even in the midst of divorce. But God did not, uh, it says that he hates divorce. God is permanent. He designed us for lasting marriages, not divorce. God is triune. He designed us for marriages of intimate companionship to counteract loneliness. Since God is three equal persons, he designed us for marriages in which husbands and wives are equally dignified or of equal worth. Since God is diverse and complementary, he created marriage to be diverse and wonderfully complementary within a heterosexual union, not a homosexual union. God also does not hate homosexuals. Since God's trinity is ordered, the Son and the Spirit gladly submitting to the Father, he designed all human relationships, including marriage, with authority to be exercised lovingly and submission to be given willingly without any implication of superiority or inferiority. Ray Ortland says this. He says the woman was made out of the man was not made out of the man's head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. A word to singles. We were all created in God's image. We were all created in the image of the triune God for friendship with God and friendship with others. And the church, as I mentioned earlier, is a place where all people, regardless of marital status, all Christians, regardless of marital status, have the privilege to complement and build up one another to love Jesus, our true spouse, and do the work that he's called us to do. All right, the other primary purpose of marriage flows out of the first. It's sanctification. That's the primary purpose of marriage. Sanctification, as we talked earlier, is both positional and it's a process. It's a position in that we have been cleansed of the penalty and power of sin, and we've been set apart as God's precious possessions. If you know Jesus Christ, you are positionally secure with God. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he no longer sees your sin. I can't stop saying that enough. 
It just blows me away that me, knowing the way that I operate my life from time to time, the thoughts that go into my head, the thoughts and temptations, I got to fight, that God the Father wants a relationship with me. That I am positionally sanctified by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's not a result of anything we do or that anything we did or earned, but it's because of faith in what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. It's a process. Sanctification is also a process because we still live in the flesh. We live in the flesh, and the effects of sin on us are still prevalent. But the more we understand the truth of our positional sanctification, and the more we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, we progressively start looking and behaving how God already sees us. And I want to just encourage you that way, that, that, that this is a primary purpose in marriage. And I'm going to explain a little bit further that my primary purpose with, for, for Nancy is to, is to see her as Christ sees her and to help her and remind her that she is God's treasured possession and that he will never leave her nor forsake her and that, that he is chiseling away her, the, 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 the sin in the flesh that's on her and the sin in the flesh that's on me. Michelangelo, the legendary sculptor and creator of the masterpiece, The David, not to be confused with The Donald, just ruined another seminar, or another sermon, sorry. The David, and, and he was asked, how did you do this? And tradition tells it this way. The question was, how in God's name, Michelangelo, could you have achieved a masterpiece like this from a slab of marble? It was easy. He said, all I did was chip away everything that didn't look like David. I created a vision. I had a vision of David in my mind, and I simply carved away everything that was not David. You you get that picture? That in the marriage relationship, we're to see our spouse as God sees them and help them see them see themselves as God sees them. The job isn't to necessarily like, like hammer away all the sin out of their life, but, but to, to lovingly help them shed themselves of the flesh that entangles them. Every block of stone has a statue inside of it, and it's a task of the sculptor to discover it. What a great lifelong purpose that is to mine out the beauty in your spouse, to see increasing beauty that God made in his image. Every Christian wife or husband is a treasured possession made in the image of the triune God and recreated by saving faith into an adopted son or daughter who is clothed in Christ's righteousness and seen by the Father as holy and pure. Every Christian is positionally sanctified, and the more we understand our position and how we obtained it, nothing that we did, we will progressively live out who we already are. So in understanding the positional aspect of sanctification, it will lead to the expression of the progressive act. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the best verse for that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. It doesn't say try to be a new creation. It says you are a new creation. You are a new creation. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And so, brothers and sisters, the purpose of every marriage, really, the purpose of every Christian relationship is to help one another be who God already sees us as being. So you and I, no matter what the marital status, you were created for a relationship with the triune God. You were created for a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ, and to be a helper. We're all suitable helpers. To help one another believe who God already, who we already are in Christ. And the primary help you and I are to give are to be instruments in the triune God's hand to help one another live as God already sees us. I want to read, uh, as we slide into communion, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13 through 15. Marriages are ground zero for Satan, for the enemy. It's ground zero. Christian marriages, actually. I I think the enemy actually stays away from, at some level, um, non-Christian marriages. But if he can can cause disharmony, if he can can, uh, mess with the peace, if he can um, uh, uh, cause divorce, um, it, it actually ruins our witness. And that's what he's after. Is for us to have a ruined witness. I'm in the wrong book. Listen to this. And this is for all of us that are positionally sanctified by faith in Jesus, we are still in the process of looking more like Christ. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse. Starting at verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What Paul is saying there is that whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, whatever temptations you have, it's common to others. You're not alone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may, be, that you may endure it. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, what we're going to be celebrating here today, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, because there is one body, we're the one bread. Because there there is uh, one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And what I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, is we slide, I think probably rather abruptly into communion, is that um, the most intimate relationship that God has created is man and wife. The the next most intimate relationship, even beyond the parent-child, is the body of Christ. And that's why, uh, children, as as you come to Christ, as you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your relationship with your parents takes a, a whole new turn. They don't love you anymore. They may not even love you any differently, but you've got a whole uh, new level to relate on. So, so we're, to, we're to relate as a body of Christ um, and to, 
to help one another, remember, remind one another of our positional sanctification so that we can uh, say no to temptation and say no to sin. And if you flip over to verses 27 and 28, Paul says this. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What Paul is saying there is that um, we're designed for community, husband and wife in the body of Christ. And sin messes with that community. So what he's saying, when you come to, to partake in the, and, and celebrate and remember the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus, do it with a clear conscience. He's not saying you need to be perfect before you can celebrate this, but he says examine yourself. So what I want to encourage you to do here before you come up and take the elements is do business. Um, first, um, being a husband and wife. If there's anything there at all, um, just confess it to the Lord. Forgive uh, before the Lord. If there's anything in the body, the local body of Christ, if you have anything against anybody, um, release them as Christ has released you. And then joyfully um, come up and grab the bread, um, grab the cup, go back to the seats. I'll come up and, and I'll, I'll lead you in a time where we'll actually partake together as one community. Okay.